for April 27th, 2020. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 617. Strivers, sycophants, and nincompoops. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. For the greater glory of website, the overthinkers are like your comrades engaged in a glorious revolution to uh, put the means of podcast production into the hands of the listeners. We'll do that later on in this hour. But first, uh, let me introduce the panel. We have with us comrade Ben Adams. Ben, welcome to glorious overthinking it podcast all all glory goes to otis <laughs> and to dear leader otis we have comrade mark lee welcome uh comrade to overthinking it podcast matthew on overthinking it podcasts you <laughs> and there is no pete fenzel who what pete fenzel non-person pete fenzel has never been on podcast Oh, 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 that reminds me. Give me just a second. I got to go uh, Photoshop a, a photograph. Real quick. <laughs> Be right back. And I am... Listen, I, I knew he was a traitor from the start. <laughs> I, I am uh, Comrade Matt Rather. And yes, uh, Pete, Pete, uh, Pete Fenzel has been sent to Fatherland. No, he's been sent to a glorious, <laughs> to a glorious re-education camp uh, called Fatherland. Yes, uh, you've, he's alluded to it a couple times on the podcast, but uh, between the last podcast and this one, Pete became a dad. Congratulations, Pete. Uh, we'll be hearing from you uh, as soon as you're able, and are just so thrilled for you um, starting out uh, on this incredible journey. So, uh, well done, and uh, we'll talk to you when we talk to you. Look, we are all still at home, uh, binge watching things on uh, binge watching things on the various streaming services, and this affords us a wonderful opportunity to pick up some films and, and talk about them that we haven't been able to uh, to address, you know, up to this point. We've taken advantage of that on on some recent episodes, and you know, it just, we decided to do something that was a little timely. We. Uh, generally stay away from politics on overthinking it, largely because we want to keep the conversation, eh, if not light, then sort of friendly, cordial, you know? And uh, that's that's sometimes really a challenge when you're talking about pod, about politics. But uh, on this podcast, my friends, in this time, we're a despotic, autocratic leader saying things that are frankly nonsensical to to even to all but the most rabid partisan party loyalist uh, can do as he pleases can go as he pleases and is unchecked unquestioned unbalanced by any countervailing power in government and of course i'm talking about north korea uh, where whose whose leader has been a little bit AWOL, has been a little bit off the map, and we're not sure if uh, uh, we're not sure um, what the news is out of North Korea at the moment, and uh, it seems a little a little iffy for uh, for the leader of that country. Well, we decided to talk about a film that uh, came out about, uh, over a year ago, but that we have not had a chance to to address on the podcast. That is Armando Iannucci's The Death of Stalin. Uh, that follows the. The, the sort of the last days and immediate aftermath of uh, the death of the Soviet leader and um, what the inner circle of, uh, you know, the leadership of that country did after um, did after his death. So, uh, you know, it's um, it's an Armando Iannucci movie. So it is not uh, it is not particularly solemn. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, Ar- Armando Iannucci, the, the creator of Veep and of uh, In the Loop, uh, the film or the thick of it, the television show that that film was drawn from. And uh, it was a, a fantastic suggestion from uh, from Ben. Ben, what led you to uh, what led you to think uh, of this film other than it is is available on netflix it was honestly it was seeing the news about you know the potential succession in north korea and nobody really having any idea of what's going on the possibility that i know his sister is involved and i'd seen death of stalin a while back and that, that was what immediately came to mind was just the 
the absurdity in an autocratic system of where you want everyone to distrust everyone else and there's no real institutions you know what happens when the dear leader unexpectedly you know falls down on the floor dead because of a uh, you know nasty note they got in a record <laughs> also to be specific that the, the- the lack of institutions is caused by the cult of personality, right? The leader is the institution to the extent that you you could even call it that. Right. Well, yeah. And it's sort of right. It, things sort of lurch back and forth. And like one of the, one of the funniest things in this movie is how everyone is like, uh, you know, this, the sky is blue. It's green comrade. Yes. It seems awfully green today. The sky today seems very green indeed. Right. The, the, uh, the people's ability to kind of make a, a statement to kind of establish a, a proposition and then to like, just say the, the exact opposite of that with full, you know, with full conviction, um, half a second later and like the, the lurching, the lurching back and forth or like the idea that Khrushchev goes home and drives drunkenly dictates to his wife what he said at Stalin's dacha the night before uh, so that, you know, if he is punished or sort of, you know, uh, taken to task for anything that he said, he's sort of aware, at least, of everything that, that came out of his mouth. And he's uh, he's ready with, you know, uh, retorts or rebuttals for what might come at him. Like things, things like that, the kind of the coping strategies that you develop under those absurd conditions um, were... I mean, a source of humor in the in the film, but are are really terrifying if you sort of think about them uh, in any kind of depth, right? Oh yeah, I mean, and a lot of the humor from the, in this film comes from the horror of living in that system, and I, I think the the scene that really lands that the hardest is the one where there, there's the executioner going down the line shooting people. And just kind of at a random point gets interrupted and told, nope, new plan. These people aren't being executed anymore. And then there's, but he accidentally shoots one guy in the meantime. <laughs> so the the, 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 the few seconds it took for the, the entire country to change course, you know, there's an actual death, a murder that occurs on screen. One. Yeah. That, um, that is like, uh, wait, I have news. Okay. Hold on one second. Boom. What's your news? <laughs> it's, ter- it's terrible. I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh at it. Um, it, it, it's interesting, like the way the way in which this is funny or not is is right. interesting. Sorry, are, are you are you sure you shouldn't laugh at that? Right. Well, I mean, so let's, let's let's talk about that. Right. Is that a joke? Like that that particular sequence there? It's incredibly bleak. Yeah, absolutely. But and and you know we keep using this word absurdity, right? Um, and that is a perfectly natural reaction to laugh at the absurdity. So I mean, did, when you, so I'll, I'll I'll just add by the way for context, right? It's been like a year or so since I've seen this movie, um, so I can't you know recall my specific reactions on things. But um, you know, like uncomfort, uh, is, discomfort is is certainly an emotion I remember feeling a lot, and just kind of like uh, I don't know, like chortling um, uh, at, at respect for the wit. Uh, of what was going on there. But did you laugh in that scene, Matt, when you saw it? Uh, oh, yeah. What oh, did you laugh yeah. in parts of the movie? Yes. Oh, I, I absolutely did. Look, one... one... <sighs> Like, uh, say what you will about the current moment in discourse. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about the current moment in discourse is I feel really held to account for being sensitive to people's actual suffering and not trivializing it because I don't experience it. Right. And that's, um, you know, uh, uh, you you could say, well, Matt, that's just a part of human decency. But I, I, you know, I don't know. I think that you know, kind of, we we have a we have spheres of concern that are concentric circles around ourselves. And uh, you know, the old joke is like, uh, tragedy is when I stub my toe. You know, comedy is when you slip on a banana peel and break your arm. Right? Like, and and so there 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 is kind of a different level of of. Um, you know, response to things like this. And like, uh, it, it's true that the, the, the real moral heroes that we admire in human history are the people who kind of push that concentric circle as far out as possible to, to encompass all of, all of humanity as a, you know, as a sort of family or, or, uh, you know, as people you would care about, as you care about your family and, and, uh, uh, about yourself. And indeed, yeah, this is the, like the, the collective banana peel. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's the love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's, uh, as a kind of high gold standard moral teaching. And, 
you know, to, to the extent, like I said, there's a great deal of absurdity in this moment in, in discourse, which someone else can talk about. But the thing I'll talk about is how grateful I am to be, to be, uh, corrected by, uh, you know, <laughs> corrected by the discourse. No, I think it's, I think it's good to sort of acknowledge people's suffering. Now that long way around the barn stammering, uh, disquisition was about like, I have concerns about, laughing at something that involves real suffering, right? Like if, if you're that guy's wife, who's like the last guy to be executed by accident, uh, you know, because the, the news didn't, didn't reach the death camp, um, you know, quickly enough, uh, that, that Stalin was dead and Hey, we're just, we're calling a pause on the, the political executions for just a minute to, you know, just to take stock of how these things are, are playing in the provinces. You know, um, if, if you're that guy's wife, it, it doesn't seem particularly funny. And, and yet like what, what's funny is, What's funny is the capriciousness of the universe. Like what's funny is the capriciousness of all life. And the, and, and the reason it's funny is because I think we can have a, a kind of solidarity in our powerlessness against a lot of forces in life. And the laugh is sort of a coping mechanism, uh, about that. Um, it, it's a laugh instead of, you know, I don't know, becoming, becoming paralyzed with, with rage or sadness or, or, uh, fear. Ben, what do you think? So a, a really good modern example of towing this line, I think, is there, are you guys familiar with the DPRK news Twitter account? Uh, vaguely, yes, this? but fill, fill in us, uh, so fill in the there's audience. A, there's a great Twitter account. It's run by a couple of bloggers that apes the propagandistic style of communist regimes and tweets ridiculous stuff coming from the the voice of the Democratic People's Republic of China. So sometimes it'll just be random things like, you know, Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un shoots 19 in golf or, uh, you know, Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un inspects beet harvest. And it, it a lot of times it'll be like a, a spin on, you know, the latest news cycle in the U.S., but it will be couched in North Korean terms. And the, the bloggers that run it have been, well, first of all, the, the main humor of the account comes from the long history of even mainstream news outlets being duped by by the account and thinking that it's real. And so running these tweets as if it's actually coming from North Korea. Oh, dear. Uh, so that's where the real humor of the account comes from. But the, the bloggers, have I, I've seen talk on Twitter before about how they are very sensitive to the fact that there are millions and millions of real people that suffer every day under the regime of North Korea. And so there are there's a tension between the humor that they're trying to do against the real life suffering of people that live in North Korea. And, and it's something that it, it's been interesting to, to see those uh, those guys talk about how they na- try to navigate that by not making light of the plight of the people of North Korea, but rather trying to poke fun at the the ridiculous over the top narrative and rhetoric of, of these kinds of regimes. Yeah. I was looking today at there's a there's a piece on the um, uh, on the New York Times right now with the the kind of uncertainty of where um, Kim Jong Un is. And like uh, there was a a sort of 10 minute video piece on the New York Times homepage about like, how do we track where the leader of North Korea is? And there, you know, they talked about all the like satellite images and stuff that they have, like outside of intelligence, like you just look just with, you know, information that's available, um, you know, via satellites and stuff like that. And like where motorcades are or what the guard rotations are at, at certain places and talking about kind of using this and the knowledge that they might be, you know, putting up a smoke screen in certain places like to to try to surmise uh what's going on or at least the kind of the location the movements of of the leader and like it was a, a very interesting sort of intellectual puzzle and if if that's your job it sounds like a kind of uh, uh fascinating problem in in kind of information gathering and intelligence development but like i i also it it did hit me anew as I was watching it this morning about all the people who live in this, you know, uh, pre-modern environment and, and, you know, suffer at the hands of a regime that kind of reserve reserves opulent um, luxury for, for themselves and, and, you know, but has people uh, 
you know, not not only, um, you know, lacking the will to kind of politically organize or express themselves freely, but also like starving, you know, in different parts of the country. And it it just it, it just struck me again, like how what what a what a world it is where, you know, I can't uh, I d- d- I don't know. I feel. I feel like uh, what a world it is where I can't go on a Zoom call without someone like accidentally taking their phone into the bathroom and forgetting to turn the camera off. You know, on the one hand, like that level of of information overload, and then uh, uh, a whole other nation of millions and millions of people who live under these um, this extreme information drought and this extreme kind of like uh, freedom drought. You know. Yeah. So humor is like what we're getting at is, is a way is a coping mechanism for all sorts of different things. Right. For the tragedy, um, you know, the, the individual tragic acts that we saw on screen and then like the just absurdity of the situation in North Korea. Right. With the mass suffering and then like the just the horribly warped society there. Um, but that that's like interesting that that's a contemporary um, situation that we're most keying in on now. Right. You know, the North Korea is a reality thing in 2020. As ridiculous as that may seem, and yes, we do need humor to cope with the fact that North Korea exists in 2020. Um, but these are events that are what, like, some 70 odd years ago, right? So there's a ton of distance um, uh, between the, the events there and what we're seeing now. Let, let's talk. About, can we talk about that for for a second, right? Like, um, like when you make a, a Stalin comedy or dark comedy or satire, whatever you want to call it, in 2020, what are you going for? I mean, is this like you know, is it simple enough to say that because even since the fall of the Cold War and especially, you know, since the rise of Putin, that um, like Hollywood has an easy punching bag in Russia and that like just the key into anti-Russian sentiment in the West over the last decade or so, uh, last 10, 15 years, like let's make an anti-Russian movie and ha like those, those those funny Ruskies or is there something else going on? I sort of I. Remember when Django Unchained came out and we talked about it on the podcast? I yeah. I sort of poked I, I raised a, a challenge to the film that I'm not sure we need a film that depicts uh, the institution of slavery in graphic detail. Um, the argument I was making is that like it's it's the argument that that uh, Jean Luc Godard made about uh, Steven Spielberg and Schindler's List. He said, you know, um, Steven Sch- Steven Spielberg is terrible because he was allowed to to rebuild Auschwitz, and uh, you know uh, Hollywood is terrible because they let Steven Spiel- Steven Spielberg do this terrible thing. Um, and you know the idea that sort of depicting a historical horror is tantamount to uh not exactly endorsing it but kind of like depicting it kind of keeps it alive and real in uh it's it feels powerful you know in in a way that that maybe it shouldn't or it feels like it is still real in a way that 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 maybe it shouldn't and can't help but sort of celebrate it or make it seem yeah. you know uh, I'm, I'm struggling to articulate what it, what it means, but just in the same way that like it's this perverse exercise of power. Yeah, saying, and, right? Hollywood and, has this like incredible ability to make things come to life are, it, that aren't with to, us now. And like you make, what did you do with that? All, you can make help. you can make amazing dinosaurs. You can make Star Wars, or you can make Auschwitz. Okay, Is I'll, I'll help idea? you build a scarecrow. You're, you're 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 worried that there's no such thing as an anti-Stalin movie, right? Well, that's so. I was like, is there such thing as an anti-slavery movie when we were talking about about Django Unchained? And you know, this was post Inglorious Bastards. And Pete's point to me, um, I, I'm sorry, uh, un, uh, non, uh, you know, uh, it occurred to me out of nowhere. There was no non-person <laughs> who who gave me the idea. Um, no, what Pete said on the on the podcast was the time was like, okay, so there are historical evils and there are Quentin Tarantino movies. Given that there is a thing called a Quentin Tarantino movie, of course <laughs> there needs to be a Quentin Tarantino movie in which slavery, in which that plantation house gets like blowed up. You know, spoiler alert for Django Unchained. You know, like, of course there's a Quentin Tarantino movie where we, um, where we kill Hitler. And the thing I think like, and I had a, a similar reaction to the Death of Stalin movie where it's, of course, there's an Armando Iannucci movie, uh, about, the death of Stalin, right? About the idea that no matter how fearsome um, 
no matter how fearsome the results of these people acting uh, on, you know, on the country and like, you know, tens of millions dead uh, in in Stalin's time and like uh, no matter how awful those consequences, don't forget that uh, that the the people doing it are a bunch of a-holes, right, are <laughs> s- small minded, venal nincompoops. Uh, who can barely who can barely find their ass with both hands in a flashlight? And I, I think that's the answer. So I, I'll I will argue that a movie like this does does have a good purpose, you know. And I think if you're saying if you're trying to find the the day and why now, you know, there's there's all sorts of in the rhetoric. There's all sorts of you know talk about how democracy is on the wane and how you know various sort of autocratic regimes are gaining power in in even Western countries, and we can. You know, question whether or not that's true, but whatever, whatever the case is, you know, there there are certainly semi serious people who occasionally pop up to say, "Wouldn't it be great if we just had a great man in charge of everything?" And this movie does a really good job of undermining that, not from the heavy handed perspective, or not maybe not even heavy handed perspective, but very sober perspective of like a Schindler's List, because of course Schindler's List is shows here's what happens when bad people are in charge; they kill millions of people. Yeah. But it it makes the, it makes the when you make the the bad guys the empire, there's a as we know from all the people that really like the empire or argue that the empire is good in Star Wars, there's like a sexiness to it. Mm. There's this idea that if you if you put the the big man in charge, maybe he'll be good, maybe he'll be bad, but at least like the trains will run on time is is the is the argument. And, and we'll look badass with amazing uniforms. Right, exactly. And, and, and we'll, we'll have the sharp uniforms and we'll have these, you know, crisp, refined people running, making all the decisions. And this movie does a really good job. No, it's just a bunch of cowards and syncophants and strivers and, you know, petty bureau. Like Khrushchev in particular, I, I really like the portrait of him in this movie because we know that he – he becomes this kind of big figure in history. He's the guy who confronts JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. and the early space race. But in this movie, he he's just this striving bureaucrat. Like he he'd be the he would be right at home in Glengarry Glen Ross, like desperately seeking the the Glengarry leads. Yeah, exactly. And not one of the not one of the top dog characters in Glengarry. No, Glen no, Ross. certainly not. I actually thought I thought Steve Buscemi was inspired casting. Uh, for him because Steve Buscemi is it, kind of a buffoon. He's like ridiculous. And he has this sort of bug eyed look that is, you know, his, that is sort of comical. Um, but he also has done um, films and TV where he's very menacing. Like there is like an undercurrent. There is like a potential for being very menacing in, in Steve Buscemi. And I kept thinking Ben about the Cuban missile crisis when I was watching this guy who looked like he was wearing his dad's suit, like the shoulder. The suit. Yeah. It was so the shoulders. And, and not only that, like he was wearing his pajamas under it for a, for a second, like the shoulders in the suit were just did so much work and kind of making him seem small and like uh you know trifling and uh and yeah i kept thinking about the cuban missile crisis the whole time and the the kind of the undercurrent of menace that um you know the undercurrent of menace that that uh, he could bring to the table even uh though he didn't display it a a single iota of it while he was on screen can we uh do a little compare and contrast with veep Right, um, uh, which we mentioned before earlier as uh, Inucci's uh, other notable political satire creation. Yeah, for uh, sure. One of his other political satire creations, right? Because when you're talking, listing off the qualities of the of the members of the government at the top of the Soviet Union, what, what is this? Drivers, sycophants, and nincompoops, and a-holes, right? That also <laughs> describes the people we see uh, in, involved in federal government in the show Veep, does it not? You guys have seen Veep, right? I mean, I've seen it. I'm not a huge Veep. Uh, I'm not a huge Veep uh, expert. Uh, nor am I. I was going to say, like, I've, seen, I've caught, like, you know, I don't know, a dozen episodes or so, and sure. I, 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 I get the gist of it. Um, yeah. But, I mean, like, you're, what you're absolutely right. I mean, it, the, the difference between this movie and Veep is largely just that the people in Veep don't have the power to just order people murdered. But other than that, it's 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 the same characters, except when they do. <laughs> I mean, well, in real life, maybe that's what in the loop is like, right? Because that's isn't that about the Iraq War? 
about how they, you know, murder a bunch of people in the Iraq war. But uh, I haven't seen enough beef to know if, like, you know, Selena Meyer or is a drone strike or something like that. Um, but There's I think some that's some foreign policy some... stuff, but no. it's it's not the it's definitely not cast in the same light. No, that's good to hear. But the I think the scene that really has the most Veep energy is the bit where Khrushchev is trying to switch places with Malenkov at the funeral. And he does like this awkward slide to the side. Do you guys remember this scene? Yeah. And he, and he just says, we'll, we'll just pretend like it's part of the ceremony. And that that had a very, a very strong Veep vibe where there's just this super awkward moment but trying to dress it up in the the clothes of a formal government ceremony of some kind. Speaking of clothes, what do you think of uh, what do you think of the you know astonishing entrance of Captain Gabriel Lorca himself, Jason Isaacs? <laughs> the- okay, since you mentioned since you dropped the L word on this, like I, I just have to put out there that Star Trek Discovery I realized has like scarred me so badly, and I have this like irrational hatred of that show at this point so it says a lot that i could still enjoy death of stalin in spite of the presence of Lorca in this um but yeah he's fantastic but i think i feel like others have people uh, others have strong things to say about him as well as as uh zukov who comes in you know the the like rack of metals jangling uh on his on his chest um yeah i don't know ben what'd you think of that guy I mean, it, he he kind of makes the movie for me. He, the, the the early line, the "I'm smiling, but I'm very very upset," um, and just just from there, just throughout that he because he is not a striver, a sycophant, or an income poop. He's like the one extraordinarily competent person uh, involved in this whole whole coup. Because I mean, and it's interesting is if you know the the history of it. Of course, I mean, like Zukov. You know, there's a case to be made. He's like one of the greatest generals in history from a from a military perspective. I mean, he he won the Battle of Stalingrad. And so he's one of he's one of the very few people in the world that can have a chest full of ridiculous medals like that and have it kind of not be ridiculous, which and Jason Isaacs manages to pull it off. I'm not exactly sure how, but he he does a fantastic job with with Zukov kind of from start to finish. Well, it is. I mean, he does sort of do him as a like a like a Capitano from Commedia dell'arte where he is a little puffed up. His chest is a little just a little too puffed. He's a little too full of himself. But but as you say, like, you know, he he is a person with sort of real like a real skill, a real sort of excellence in something. And I think that comes, I think that comes across in the film that he's like one of the only people uh, of the kind of the leadership cadre who actually does violence, you know, um, and like him sort of punching one of these sycophantic toadies, one of these obsequious little people in the face uh, is like, <laughs> there's he almost, there's almost a relish in it. I, I don't know. It's very hard to make an anti-Zukov movie. He cuts such a dashing figure, doesn't he? <laughs> Um, yeah. And, and, uh, that, that, and then, then like Michael Palin is in this movie, you've sort of gotten, you've gotten to British comedy royalty, uh, by like include, well, I don't know who British comedy royalty is. We have British listeners. We have, you know, people all, all over the British Isles The please, you know, correct me. Um, but it it is like a sort of elder statesman, right? Who's who's in there, and the way he is as uh, Moltov, um, the way he is almost like more. He he's more invested. Like uh, you know, his wife was on a list. Well, no, and his wife comes back to him. Well, no, that's it's terrible that he brought my wife back to me because she was on a list. She was she was an enemy of the state. Reminded me of something from 1984 when we did the the 1984 book club. Um, the the idea that the you know the kind of hoax perpetuated it's not like there's a hoax perpetuated on the lower on the you know rank and file or on the like the peasant class or on you know the middle and lower class um 
that that there's kind of an upper class or a leadership cadre pulling the wool over their eyes in in 1984 makes the you know one of the characters makes the point that the the people in charge actually have to believe the lie even more fervently you know um than the people uh than the people who are forced to kind of suffer the worst consequences of the lie you know they they have to kind of believe in in the system and just Michael Palin being funny by being completely straight faced and like, well, no, I, I, I don't want my wife back. She's a traitor. Of course we should, we should take out Beria because like he, he did me this, this act of mercy, like releasing my, my wife to me, that, that traitor who was on one of Stalin's lists. She's an, an enemy of the people. That's, you know, and, and, uh, the kind of the, the way in which the, 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 People in charge are necessarily self-deceiving. Um, is I don't I don't know if it's hilarious or if it's harrowing, but it's definitely one of the two. Well, it's it's interesting to watch how much the, the momentum that the lie and the edifice of Stalin has, and how it's it kind of has a, has a different half life for different characters. Because I think that's what we're seeing with the Michael is he takes longer the the Michael Palin character Molotov takes longer than you know the the gross cynics like Beria and uh, Khrushchev to figure out that Stalin really is dead. And that means that it's a whole new world than it was yesterday. And so that, that's why you still have the the guys who come into the room, calamity, calamity, because Stalin is dead. Yeah. Um, that because they're, they're still afraid that he's going to like pop up from the grave and put them on a list because, you know, they were insufficiently upset about his death. Yeah. I, you or know, that it's a ruse. Right, exactly. And that's like, um, that it's a ruse. And that, that is the sort of thing, you know, in that atmosphere of sort of fear and uncertainty, like, you know, sort of lying to each other, sort of catching each other out, you know, with quote unquote jokes or, or, you know, subterfuge or sort of false statements is part of what, uh, you know, is part of how the, the leader in a situation like that manages to hold on to power by preventing people from, you know, forming alliances, forming kind of relationships with anyone but uh, with anyone but the leader, forming sort of um, horizontal relationships as opposed to like vertical ones with with the leader. You know, it's funny we brought up Veep uh, before in terms of like talking about how people are sort of venal and uh, and and uh, obsequious, but the. Uh, I, I was thinking a little bit about The Wire as I was watching this movie because it was about how institutions um, kind of shape the behavior of people. But it had a very different emphasis, right? Like what, what David Simon has said about The Wire is that The Wire is about in, in being about um, the sort of the illegal, the legal, illegal and kind of gray area kind of institutions in the city, Baltimore, you know, the, the uh, homicide squad of uh, the Baltimore Police Department of a drug selling gang of dock workers of teachers you know um and on and on like the uh it it sort of goes to show that in the contemporary world and i think this is close to being in quotation like you are compromised always and your ideals are compromised and you are forced to work within the constraints and within the kind of the language, the boundaries of whatever institution you have sort of committed yourself to. And so no matter how noble, you know, uh, no matter how, um, forward thinking you are, and I'm thinking of like Colvin here, um, I forget his rank, but the, maybe he's a captain, um, in the Hamsterdam season, you know, and, uh, um, or even like, like Prespolusky going to be a teacher and realizing that they juke the stats the same way, uh, the police departments do, but they do it with te- test scores instead of, uh, crime statistics. Like that, no matter what, no matter how noble your ambitions, you are compromised and you're going to be, you know, kind of brought back to the level of the mean of the institution because the institution has, uh, its own logic. This seems to be a little bit, different like n- no matter how um no matter how fearsome the institution no matter how high-minded it's its ideals i guess uh right and and you know the ideals of of communism of like marxism are high-minded um the people 
instituting those ideals, the individuals are greedy, are venal, um, are, you know, striving and wheeling dealing and, and, you know, uh, a bunch of kind of untrustworthy gangsters, really, and, and small time gangsters at, at that. And that, like, um, it's a slightly different way, uh, it's a slightly different way of approaching the problem. The wires being that, you know, high mindedness fails because no matter how high minded the individual, the institution grinds you down. And, um, the Ianuchian idea, um, being that uh, no matter how high-minded the stated uh, aims of the institution, no matter how high-minded the philosophy that undergirds it, uh, you get dragged down because people are are greedy and short-sighted. In other words, they're they're human beings. I don't know. It's it may have that's been a, me. That's an interesting comparison, um, but. Uh- uh, I want to dig into the high-minded aspect a little bit here because, like, you can get there with the wire, right? You know, because you ostensibly have the rule of law, um, you know, the the Baltimore government, and you know, all the the robes and the judges and, and things like that. Um, and well, the, your baseline rather is like your just general conception of what uh, a functioning American society ought to be, right? All fine and good. Um, now, the 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 baseline for high-mindedness that you talk about in in Death of Stalin is like is more remote from this movie, though. You're talking about, like, I don't know, Marxism as it existed, like, in the Communist Manifesto and, like, just a handful of other intellectual circles, right? As opposed to, like, I don't know, what was this, like, some very fleeting moments in the beginning founding of the USSR where, like, uh, some of that might might have been there, right? But, like, I guess, like, that, that, that you don't have that much of a juxtaposition within the realm of the death of Stalin as you, as I believe you did in The Wire, although, I, uh, confession again, like, I've seen, like, a handful of episodes of The Wire, so I can't speak um, authoritatively on that, but, like, uh, well, we'll we get to get we'll get to you, Mark. Back. We'll get to you, Mark. That we got Belinky to watch The Wire under quarantine, and and we're coming for 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 you. Oh, th- that is the power of the overthinking institution. Right? All your exactly never like, to watch The Wire, right? No matter how high minded you are. <laughs> I was to- I was told that a man's got to have a code. <laughs> my my code for a while there was not watching The Wire. The wire's um, coming, yo. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because right, exactly. Because you have a bunch of uh, you have a bunch of people like me who are like white guy who has seen the wire, saying, "Oh my god, man, have you seen the wire? It's so great. It really gets into all the serious, gritty urban problems." Ben, we cut you off before. What were you about to say? <laughs> no, that's all right. The, the talking about institutions. So I wrote a piece for Overthinking at Once, comparing two very different movies, two two movies that could hardly be more different than the death of Stalin, but are about a similar era. The uh, it's a wonderful life and miracle on 34th Street. And the, the thesis of my piece for overthinking it was that one of the movies is about how America works because the people are good, despite bad institutions. And one of the movies is about how America works because the institutions are good, despite the, the bad motives of the people that are in them. Wait, which was which? <laughs> So, so it's a wonderful life. It says the people are good, but the institutions are lousy and okay. have failed everyone. Got it. Uh, so that's why at the end, George Bailey has to be saved by you know just a bunch of people showing up to his house with money because the institutions have utterly failed. Whereas in Thirty Fourth Street, like all of the people except maybe Santa and the little girl are like kind of selfish and venal and are just looking out for the bottom line. But everything works out okay because it turns out that what's good for the bottom line is what's good for everybody. Uh, this movie, I don't think it's hard to disentangle because both the people are so terrible and the institutions they are embedded in are so bad. So it's it's very hard to disentangle in this movie which is supposedly the bad piece. You know, is would the Soviet Union have been better with the same institutions if there had been been better people, or you know, could you stick Stalin at the top of a demo, you know a uh, Republican government and everything would turn out okay? This movie doesn't really take a position on that, I don't think. No, and uh, overthinking it doesn't take a position on whether American society now is a lab for precisely this, <laughs> uh, for precisely this question. But it, but it is. Uh, I'll say that it is the it is the opinion of of Enlightenment liberalism that uh, a society with with strong institutions is important because you can't always count on uh people to to behave nobly and when you dismantle 
the institutions uh, that you know provide a buffer against the action of any any one individual, even when it's a, a member of your your uh, you know a, a political party you support doing it. Um, like when you uh, consolidate power in the executive, uh, someone else is going to to use that power and maybe not do things um, not do things that you like. So uh, we have we have been talking about the death of of Stalin. Uh, it's on Netflix. Netflix, streaming free. We uh, highly commend it to you as good viewing for um, quarantine. Now, pivoting from terrible people to some of the best people in the world, and I'm talking about overthinking it members. Uh, I put out the call um, to members this week uh, to just kind of check in on them and see how they're doing. You know, these are uh, times that we were not prepared for. And uh, we're a lot of us under quarantine. We're at home more. Our social interaction is is limited. And, and what there is, is, is vastly changed. Um, there are a number of stresses uh, involved in it. One of them is that, like, if you are confined to your house, if you, you know, if you're lucky enough to continue working and work family socializing is all taking place uh, in the same um, physical space, perhaps even in the same chair (laughs) at the same desk. Uh, That's a, that is a stressful collapse of kind of different persona, different aspects of the self in on, on one another and kind of maintaining the integrity of those different types of, you know, those different aspects of yourself is, is just difficult. Um, you know, the, the, the stress of worried about getting seriously sick is difficult. The, the stress of, of losing your job is difficult. The stress of seeing, um, all kinds of things. You don't need me to remind you of these things. And I, I reached out to the overthinking. I didn't reach out. Oh God. I sort of promised like that and leverage in a business context in a, in a non-physics context are, are two words that I've sort of sworn, uh, personally, never to use, and I'm sorry that I've broken my solemn vow. Now, Listen, I, you you just wanted to give him a ping, close the loop. We get it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's drill down. Um, the uh, yeah. The um, okay. I'm going to circle back to what I was talking about before. <laughs> uh, I sent an email out to the people who are uh, who are members, asking two things. One, how you doing? Like things going okay? Good. Things not going okay? That's all right to hear about as well. Um, I'm I'm curious and I'm concerned. So like, please uh, uh, just give a shout and, and let us know how you're doing. And two, uh, let us know how your media consumption habits have changed uh, a little bit over the um, you know over the time that we've been uh, generally under stay at home orders. Uh, though it's not you know it's not uniform. It's not nationwide and uniform. Um, a lot of us are. So uh, I'm going to read some of our responses and and uh, we're going to we're going to talk about them for a little bit. And I I think that you might see yourself in these. Uh, you might see yourself somewhere in uh, one or two of these responses. So uh, let's start off with a member of Overthinking It, uh, Shane from Montana. Shane says I'm surviving. Uh, I'm a software developer, so working remotely has been fine. Except I live in rural Montana on satellite internet, so the Ping on VPN is horrible. Sorry, let me let me jump in and editorialize. Ping means the response time of a, like a single packet request response cycle. So what he's saying is that even like a single round trip of information, of which there are hundreds, thousands, millions, tens of millions, you know, uh, going back and forth in order to to do normal internet transactions. He's saying that that like atomic unit of response time is very bad uh, on the VPN he's using for work. So to cope. Shane continues, I've had to pull a lot more files down to my local laptop to work on because SSH over VPN over satellite sucks. There's just a lot of little things in my workflow that I've had to adjust and make it a little worse. It's fine. To cope, I finally started playing The Witcher 3. I have my work laptop right next to my gaming PC, so when things start taking a while on the VPN, I start playing that. There's also been some boring meetings that I may also play video games through. Oh, my wife and I finally watched The Orville. It's weird seeing Seth MacFarlane acting like a competent starship captain. We like it. Uh, Thank you, Shane. Um, I commend Shane for (laughs) that amazing amount of multitasking there. The only way you could possibly outdo that is if you uh, set up one of those video loops to be playing 
on the Zoom, so it makes it look like you're paying attention. Someone, I think, has managed to code it as well to give canned responses um, so that you actually speak and say something. Uh, I think it was more sort of a proof of concept or a joke might be a better way to describe it rather than something you would actually do uh, to avoid being present on a work meeting. Um, I would also plug... Uh, generally speaking, video games, uh, not just like casual phone games, but real video, quote unquote, real video games uh, as a good distraction, a diversion during these quarantine times, because they are all consuming um, and require all of your concentration. I've been playing uh, Half-Life 2, uh, that uh, seminal first person shooter from the the, the mid aughts. Um, and it is gripping and it's intense, uh, a whole lot of fun. And you don't think about the horrible things going on in the world because there's a uh, scary zombie aliens coming at you. And you're blowing away the shotgun. Good stuff. Oh, there's a member who writes in with with uh, kind of a tough situation. Um, how you doing? Not well, writes this member. I started dating a Navy pharmacist uh, who keeps me informed of how bad everything is. And I get to act as their verbal punching bag when she needs to vent. So, yay. My tip is just to do whatever needs to be done for whoever needs something. Well... I also want to make sure that you have a place to vent when you, when, when you need to vent. It's really good to support people, but it's also good to kind of like check on your, your mental health. Like, uh, it's not just hashtag living your best life. It's, it's also that, you know, we're, we're no good to each other if we burn ourselves out. Um, that, I mean, just at the, at the most basic level, right? Uh, at the most transactional level, uh, if you burn yourself out, you can't can't help anyone else. So if for no other reason than that, uh, self-care is, um, is important as well. And, I, and as someone who is married to a Navy spouse, uh, I can, can speak up and say that frequently uh, supporting someone who is you know, in, in a particular role or, or doing something can frequently be actually more difficult than actually doing the thing. Because the uh, frequently, like the Navy is very, is very much like this. The institution is very much geared towards supporting the person who is in the Navy with only a second thought then about, okay, how about the people around them? Uh, and so you, 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 dear reader, have my permission to occasionally vent for yourself, not just uh, be a punching bag. Zach writes in to say, in answer to your first question, I'd like to say I'm doing fine. Though my grandfather once said, fine is what you say when you don't want to burden other people with your problems. Instead, I will say I'm doing tolerably well. Uh, and Zach says that that for him, nothing yet has become difficult. And I have found that my financial situation is less fraught, than I w- less fraught than I was worried it would be. So there's a bright spot in that. I will admit I'm finding it hard to maintain a daily schedule in a meaningful manner. Since I do physical labor, yet the job is not considered essential, I'm laid off with little to do. So that's easy to rectify. I've drawn up a list of minor tasks that I've been putting off for a long time, uh, mostly small things like reorganizing my desk drawers, figuring out how to clean a few stubborn stains. I've seen a number of people say they've had trouble keeping one day from flowing into the next. My advice is is, uh, not to avoid setting definite time for relaxation when you can. Uh, in addition to my usual consumption of short and medium form YouTube videos, the main change to my media consumption has been uh, to begin binging on British mystery television. Zach, you're my dude. You're my dude, Zach. Yeah. Sorry, don't mean to editorialize. Back to this email. I'm currently making my way through the series Foil's War, starring Michael Kitchen. Uh, while this is not a huge change for me, I realize I've changed how I watch the shows. I find myself re-watching scenes to pay more attention to the acting or count the number of times one character or another hits on a theme or idea central to the episode or series. Uh, I, have admit, I, I have to admit that I've been not consuming as much media actively, rather than just having something on in the background for sound because I've been spending time creating. This month, April, is one of the National Novel Writing Month summer camps, so I've been actively writing each day, uh, sitting down, blocking out time to keep working on reaching my goals. I've also noticed a number of people, not just in my writing community, that have been increasingly creative during this time. One YouTube channel has been encouraging, featuring community videos, offering technical assistance to help people creating videos, starting their own channels. I've seen a number of people, mainly on YouTube, but also Twitch, uh, who are putting out more content to help other people deal with stress or promote their community coming together and supporting each other, just like this one. 
Uh, Zach, thanks a bunch uh, for that. I hope you find us. I hope you find us supportive. It's it's great uh, that you have the. I honestly like. I've been dealing with attention span <laughs> problems um, that you know, uh, especially since like since I'm I happen to be looking for work right now. Um, the uh, you know, the kind of job search, well, it's, it can be like a kind of a tough slog, but like being able to, to put together like more than 45, 50 minutes of like concentrated work together has been a challenge for me. And I really commend you, uh, being able to sit down and, and work on a novel, which is one of the most solitary, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's like a high wire act, right? Writing, uh, writing a novel because like anything, any kind of like attention, um, you know, any distraction is is apt to kind of knock you off of that high wire. So I, I you know, I I commend you. And like I said, you're my dude. If you are watching that uh, moody British mystery television, I love that stuff. Um, I was really unhappy that they took Shetland off of uh, off of Netflix and put it on some kind of like British specific TV streaming service. And I may have to sign up for their free trial. In the spirit of the Brits, shouldn't you be even much more understated about being really unhappy? Say a trifle bit disappointed, perhaps. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's true. I'm a, I'm I'm an American Anglophile, so uh, I'm 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 embarrassing to be around in pubs. <laughs> um, one other thing on that, like I, I really commend everybody getting out there and being more creative and putting their stuff out on the internet. Um, but the mind does does it not boggle the mind to imagine how many more people with free time are uploading even more stuff to YouTube now, whereas before. Um, like uh, insane numbers of hours were being uploaded to YouTube uh, every second. Like I don't know, like something like crazy, like thousand hours of video being uploaded to YouTube every minute, second, something like that. Um, and yet more, 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 more. Um, it, it it's just like this. You know, we're, we're watching more and more is being uploaded at the same time. Um, I uh, it it uh, it warps my feeble mind. It does, it truly does. We're we're getting some competition too. I, I I have no idea if this is true or not, or just one of those things you read on the internet. But supposedly, uh, Amazon ran out relatively quickly of uh, podcasting equipment because everybody started podcasting <laughs> in, in quarantine. <laughs> I'm lucky that uh, I'm lucky that we you know we had ours locked down uh, already. Um, yeah, man. It's uh, I I read something about Jackbox today. The um, you know, the creators of You Don't Know Jack who do these kind of online party games where you everyone can kind of play on their phone. And uh, people are playing over video conferencing services. Um, apparently, their big times used to be like Thanksgiving or something when families were together and would play this party game uh, d- together. And then, like, the big day was New Year's Eve when people having New Year's parties would play these uh, Jackbox party games um, before the countdown. And uh, now they say that like every weekday is like a Thanksgiving and, and weekends are like bigger than the biggest New Year's Eve they ever had, you know, before the, the quarantine people are people are, are using this game. A um, little tough on their business model because, you know, they're probably paying for bandwidth or, or compute resources. And uh, uh, that's a game where you buy it once. It's not like a subscription. So, um that's the uh, little little tough on the business model unless they're getting just a whole bunch of people buying the um buying the new games i guess you put out you know expansion packs and and that's how you do that julie writes in to say thanks for asking things are good here at 27.2038 degrees north 77.5011 degrees east near portland oregon Ah, Julie, long time, long time fan, giving us the ICBM address. Really appreciate that. Uh, Julie says, what's hard? Working out at home. Not going to lie, I'm more concerned about gaining the quarantine 19 than getting CV 19. Heyo. <laughs> Teaching the elders in the tribe, parents and neighbors, Zoom, online banking, and why they don't need to go to Costco, Home Depot, or really anywhere else. What's not hard? Being kind and patient. Well, good for you, Julie. <laughs> I'm teasing. Good for you. If that is not hard for you, bless, bless you. Uh, and also not hard, smizing over your mask like Tyra Banks taught us all. 
Um, increasingly, media consumption has changed. My media consumption has changed dramatically. I have no patience for sitting for any long form thing, books, which I love, movies, uh, even series that I'd like to binge. Though I will admit to watching both Strictly Ballroom and Center Stage for the one millionth time recently. Instead, it's all YouTube all the time. I'm putting my premium service to good use, especially Broadway song interpolations and really uh i'm uh draw into drawn into the late night hosts from home clips they're killing it julie i'm sorry I'm, i bungled my lines on your email it's all youtube all the time putting my premium service to good use especially broadway song interpolations and really drawn into the late night hosts from home clips they are killing it uh cheers to all of you julie says the podcast is a highlight of my week wash your hands julie p.s one more thing if i hear the word unprecedented one more time. Well, Julie, the, the podcast is a highlight of our week as well, too. So we're glad that uh, we we're able to share that with other people. Um, and, and the other thing is that uh, uh, unprecedented. Is that are, do we say that or do other people say that? No, it's this unprecedented quarantine. It's this unforeseeable, okay. you know. I mean, us being masters of discourse, surely we would not repeat a word like unprecedented so many times. I mean, that would be unprecedented in this podcast, would it not be? No, yeah. Um, yeah, but this is a, this is an unprecedented level of engagement I think we're getting from from our members. And I'm really appreciative, mm. appreciative um, to them. Is it, though, truly unprecedented? <laughs> is it really, really, in human history and even modern human history? You know, um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll go with yes, but <laughs> we, could, we could probably keep moving on in our life, in our lifetimes. Maybe. Yeah, sure. I mean, OK, fine. Just you know, yes. About 100 years ago, Spanish flu, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the world is very different uh, in 1918 than it is in 2020. Blah, 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 blah. Um, you know what's different that didn't have in 1918? YouTube. And, you know, in, and, uh, and they didn't have the YouTube incredibly thirsty nag ads to get you to subscribe to the premium service, which is great, I must say. And probably worth it um, because YouTube ads are horrible and incredibly repetitive and increasingly intrusive. Uh, but man, is YouTube thirsty? Asking you to do that little trial, click this little button, or you, why don't you? Why don't you throw some money this way? Free trial. Pretty much every time. Pretty much every time you you log in. I mean, I think it would be. Uh, I think it would be good. I don't know. I, d- you you guys are parents, and if if I had a child, I I probably would do a lot to uh, keep from exposing the child to the awful ads that are on YouTube. Uh, and and so you know it, it it might be worth it. But I don't know if you you guys are uh, uh, doing the YouTube Premium for your Daniel Tiger streaming needs. The ads of when you play a, a, a video for your kid are truly awful, but I'm resisting with all my uh, every ounce of willpower in my body to fork over that additional money to YouTube. <laughs> Joe writes in to say, I, really, I originally tried uh, chain-watching my way through a bunch of shows that were on my really-should-have-watched-that list. But I found that slow-watching my way through several different shows, one episode per day or so, fits better with my shelter-in-place mood. Really, this means I've reverted to how I used to consume media culture 20 years ago, both in process of consumption and kind of media consumed. I think media that's intended to be binge-watched sacrifices tone for story. To satisfy the binge-watching process, it has to have the three-act plot and the tone that goes with the differing tension uh, happen over the series of episodes. Because the episodes aren't intended to be consumed as standalone episodes, they have less per-episode depth, and the shows have more per-arc depth. The trend to add story arcs was good, but I think many shows have crossed over to the point where characters aren't characters, they're just agents of the plot. In the non-bitch versions of season-long arcs, the characters and personalities change in response to events, and the events are driven by the characters' desires. In the binge version of season-arc shows... It's the characters' knowledge and actions that change, but not their personalities. Consider some high-profile shows with season arcs. The Last Airbender, Altered Carbon, Mad Men, The Wire, The Expanse, Babylon 5, Breaking Bad. Uh, Across decades and across genres, in non-binge shows, the characters end the arc as different people. In binge shows, they end the arc in different situations. 
It's an interesting insight, Joe, and it goes to like what I've uh, what I wrote about a long time ago on overthinking it. That like snackability, you know, TV snackability was a uh, uh, a thing that inhered in the content of the show rather than being just a phenomenon of how we consumed it, and that that we'd have these kind of highly snackable. Um, we'd have these sort of highly snackable uh, like shows that had that kind of quality of like keeping the, keeping the kind of the wheel turning in between episodes and not just from, for like having a cliffhanger, uh, having a cliffhanger at the end. I think you're right to kind of identify a certain consistency, a certain dynamic sameness um, in tone to this, the shows that are highly snackable, that are highly bingeable um, because those are the ones that, you know, kind of like sort of like the, Simpsons kind of reverting to like, you know, Simpsons, uh, prime, you know, Simpsons like, uh, un, un, uh, uh, undeveloped at the end of every episode, like they've never aged, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the, it is an interesting insight that even the kind of the dramas, the serialized, highly serialized dramas, uh, can do that as well. Um, I, and I think like, uh, I think suffer for it a little, a little bit, I don't know, binge watchable shows. All right. Finally, we have Ian who says, frankly, we're exhausted in isolation. My family, my wife, sister-in-law and I are fortunate that we're also fully employed, but they're also twin two-year-olds who do not understand at all the concept of please go play on your own because the adults need to telework. They demand near constant supervision. So even weekends aren't much of a respite. Plus they're stir crazy without their friends or playgrounds. We're saving a lot of money on daycare, but right now I'd pay double to have it back even if just for a few days. Makeshift science projects and tactile activities also buy us some time. Costco helps us there. We've made a rice table and uh, doing activities with baking soda and vinegar in industrial quantities for cheap. I've also used a lot of the daycare savings to donate to local food banks and businesses. It's tough while we're in the thick of it ourselves, but still trying to acknowledge our still-employed privilege. Uh, media list right now during the day, a lot of Mickey, a lot of Clifford, and Muppet Babies, and also explaining to toddlers why a crossover between those IPs is not available and likely never will be. Two weeks ago, we discovered Super Simple Songs and it's been a lifesaver. The kids can watch Mesmerize for at least 30 minutes, far longer than the other shows held their attention. Downside? Earworms. At night, the three adults have been keeping sane with varieties of booze and a list of classic movies that at least one of us inexplicably has never seen. Blade Runner, Alien, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Goodfellas, 9 to 5, and The Usual Suspects have been recent ones. Also on a whim, saw yesterday, the one about the Beatles, has a lot to overthink if you're in search of a newer property to analyze. Changes to the timeline require internally consistent rules. Damn it. All the best, Ian in Cincinnati. Mark, you saw yesterday. I did, and I agree with the frustration about the, uh, the lack of consistency with, with the uh, quote-unquote rules of that universe. Um, and it would be a, a good uh, topic for discussing and overthinking. We saw the adjacent movie uh, Blinded by the Light, which was about another uh, South Asian uh, young man in Britain taken by, uh, you know, uh, taken by rock music. Um, and that was a better movie than yesterday for sure. But, uh, well, yesterday got the great songs by the Beatles. Uh, so, um, total worth it for that. Hmm. Um, Cool, cool. Uh, I, I like uh, the idea of a Mickey Clifford and Muppet Babies uh, crossover uh, crossover thing. I don't know. Do you, do you guys have a like a um, do you guys have a like a, a kids entertainment suggestion? There's a whole bunch of Berenstein Bear. There was a Berenstein Bears television show that aired, I think, in the 90s. The vast majority of episodes are available free on YouTube. Uh, and uh, if my test audience is any evidence, then three-year-olds love it. Big fans <laughs> of the Berenstein Bears. I also – here's one from uh, from our friend Overthinker Josh, um, who's – 
uh, hasn't been on an episode in a while, but was on some some early ones and has some young uh, young boys. And he says um, his three year old loves a set of YouTube videos that are just songs about trucks and the the this whoever this marketing genius is like has just written a song for every type of truck and it's like steam shovel steam shovel shoveling stuff up steam shot you know like i that's not a real one i just i just made that up it, it may be better than than the ones that are there but they're they're put together with uh stock footage with like uh you know royalty free footage <laughs> of these uh you know big pieces of heavy machinery of heavy equipment in action and apparently they are they are mesmerized uh the kids are mesmerized by these um uh by these particular things i'll try to put a, a link to those we'll give you some links in in youtube yeah i uh being a non-parent um i really my hat's off to all my my friends who are parents who are uh doing childcare in the way that they are it's, it's not easy i think that speaks that's a self-evident thing that speaks for itself but needs to be said again and again over and again um one last thing on this is that um uh a mickey and muppet babies crossover uh would not be uh prevented by ip ownership issues right because uh, disney owns the muppets yeah i think right i think that's true like and i remember a lot of muppet stuff at like what the mgm studios in florida or they're now called the hollywood studios something something like that yeah that that uh that is a good that's a good point. Also, like Muppet Babies was a great show that I loved uh, when I was a kid. And I, I want to just like Jem um, went on to another fantastic show that I loved as a kid, got onto Netflix. Um, and I, I watched a couple episodes and was like, wow, this was in, in some ways like pretty complicated and ahead of its time um, for, you know, a kid's cartoon. The uh, I, I want to find a place to stream some Muppet Babies episodes and see what I think about them. So uh, if you have a line, you know, if you know a guy <laughs> who can who can get me some Muppet Babies episodes, uh, if they've fallen off the back of a truck, whatever, uh, as long as the merchandise is good. Um, I would I would definitely be be interested in that. Thank you to all the members who wrote in. If you would like to become an Overthinking It member and support the site, head to overthinkingit.com slash join. It's five bucks a month to be a member. You get some nice perks, but more than that, you get the the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you are supporting the community that uh you know that is sustaining all of us at least a little bit during uh during this time. And hey, is there anything that we could do that would make this uh make this better? Anything that you'd like to see? see from us i mean there are all kinds of you know we've done online book clubs before that's kind of a new thing online movie watching clubs something like this something like that like uh one-time event for uh for overthinkers doing something like if you have some ideas leave a comment on the show notes for this this episode we would love to hear from you so thanks again to the members who wrote in thank you for listening uh ben and mark comrades thank you for talking about the death of Stalin with me and uh we uh we appreciate you and uh, congratulations to Pete on fatherhood and, and um, can't wait to hear about it. I'm sure you will have a number of incredible. Matt, who, who, who are you talking about? Oh, good. I don't, know, I don't know. I don't know this uh, Pete. <laughs> yeah, this is this is just a purely nonsense. Yeah. During during the hour of this podcast, all of my pictures from college have been photoshopped to <laughs> to uh... need new lists. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com. The level, the site where we subject the glorious pop culture to level of scrutiny. It probably, probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. We go whole podcast. Don't use Russian accent. Now we do it. <laughs>